Welcome everyone to History Talks. This month's topic is down the research rabbit hole. And I have four wonderful authors here and we're going to answer, ask questions and see what they say about their research methods and all the funny stories they have to tell. The first, what I'd like to do is have everybody introduce themselves. Martin, could you please go first? Hi everybody, my name is Martin Turnbull and my historical fiction focuses on the golden era of Hollywood, which is the 1920s through to the 1950s. My latest book is called, and let me hold it up here, it's called The Heart of the Lion, and it's a book about the MGM movie producer uh, Irving Thalberg, who had quite an extraordinary life packed into uh, quite a few years. Uh, so that's what it's about. Hi, everybody. Uh, Glenn Craney here. I uh, write in a lot of different eras, a couple of medievals, Age of Discovery, World War One. My latest, which is the Cotillion Brigade, hopefully you can see it, is about the, uh, it's a Civil War story about the uh, most famous female militia in American history. Thank you. Janet. I do all tutor all the time. Um, my latest is The Boy King. It is the conclusion to the Seymour Saga trilogy that began with Jane the Queen. Hi, I'm Anne Louise Bannon. I write in the 1920s, the 1980s, and my most uh, special group is the 1870s Los Angeles, the old Los Angeles series, their murder mysteries, uh, featuring Maddie Wilcox, a winemaker and doctor. The latest book is Death of the Chinese Field Hands, based on an actual event in uh, Los Angeles history. There we go. And I'm Autumn Bardot. I'm going to be moderating and asking the questions today, and I write historical fiction and urban fantasy. My latest release is Goddesses Inc. It is a urban fantasy about four goddesses who are fired because they are no longer relevant. Okay, so we're going to start asking those research questions. Martin, how much time do you spend researching a new time period? Uh, my first project was a nine book series that covered life at a, a real life hotel on Sunset Boulevard here in Los Angeles called the Garden of Allah Hotel. It was opened for 32 years that happened to be the, the 32 years of the golden years of Hollywood. So before I even wrote a word, I sat down and I researched the time by reading every autobiography, every biography, every memoir, every nonfiction book I could get that covered that specific period. So that took a year, a year of sitting on the couch reading everything that I could get my hands on, which ended up being about a hundred books. And by then I had a very detailed timeline of what happened when and to who, and what was the result of that. That also resulted in a, another document, another master document of mine, which has all the, the, the cafes, the restaurants, the speakeasies, the nightclubs that I could find all the details. So when I came time to set a, a scene, I could find something interesting that was open at that specific time that I could set my scene at. And then I would go through with each book, I would narrow down to that particular era, which each book covered about two or three years. So I would create a third document that would, would cover that specific era. So it was a lot to begin with, but those master documents have, have been something I refer to virtually every day that I write. That's a tremendous amount of research. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Glenn? How much time do you spend researching a new time period? Uh, the time varies depending on the book. I like to think of my research in terms of phases. 
Um, usually when I'm finished with one book, I'll go through what I call my incubation stage, where I'm prowling around looking for another story, riffling through my new ideas folder, uh, reading wild, widely. And if I find something I think I want to spend maybe a year on, then I go into my immersion stage, which I, I read everything I can get my hands on about that subject, about that period. But then uh, even when I start writing, the research doesn't end. I, I leave a lot of the details to while I'm writing, you know, the manners, how somebody looks, how they wear dress. I, I'll research even during the, the writing stage too. And Janet, you write in predominantly one particular period, but what are you going to tell us about that? I'm going to say that you would think that it would be a lot easier to write in a single period, but there is enormous variation from the beginning of the Tudor period to the end of the Tudor period. I too have the outline, you know, the with every single date that happened through all of that. Um, but I do have to keep on doing the ongoing research to make sure that I know the difference between what people were wearing and eating and doing um, at different times. So it's a big undertaking. And Anne, tell us how much time do you spend researching a new time period? Like Lynn, it takes uh, a, a different amount of time depending on what I'm doing too. Part of the thing is if it's an era I'm already reasonably familiar with through past reading and stuff like that, and I've been researching it for years, like the 19th century, because I read a lot about that. In the 1920s, when I didn't know anything about it, it took me a lot longer and I had to read a lot more books. And, and also like Glenn, my research is never done. I'm always, you know, there's always that one extra little detail that I'm still looking for. Even after I finished the draft, I'm still looking for this, that, or the other thing. So it's, a, it's an ongoing process. So, you know, it, and it is kind of fun because sometimes, you know, I'll be researching one thing and something else will pop up. I was researching Death of the City Marshal and I've got the subject for my fourth book while I was researching that. So research does create new ideas and that's- Oh, sure. does it ever. Tell us, Martin, how do you know what to keep and what to skim over? My process is that I throw everything into the first draft. I throw all the historical references, all the dialogue, all the characterizations, the costume details, the production details. I throw it all in, all the jokes, everything goes in. And then I go through it the second, third, and probably fourth draft. I weed out the references that aren't moving the plot forward, the references, the facts that aren't expanding on character, and wait, places where I've repeated the same thing a few times. I know I have, but what I'm looking for is the best time in that moment of the plot that illuminates a certain aspect of movie making or of life in Los Angeles or the life of an actress or a movie mogul. There's, there's always going to be a, a better time to tell that story or, or that fact or refer to that person. So I weed out the ones that don't work out quite so well and I'm left with the, the perfect facts and the perfect references at the perfect time. That's, that's the goal. And it takes a few drafts to get there, but generally I get there, yeah. Glenn, what do you know what to keep and what to skim right over? What I strive to do is to include as much as I can without slowing the action. That's easier said than done. <laughs> uh, I, I find that historical fiction readers, devoted readers of the genre, will give authors a little more leeway on backstory and historical information. They like some of that in there, whereas if you're writing a thriller, you, you can't include as much of that in there. You've got to really be pumping it. 
And a, another thing I've found is that the best exercise to find out what to leave out is unfortunately listening to your audiobook. <laughs> uh, having your words read back to you, it can be a sobering experience. That always comes at the end of the line when you've already written it. So I, I, I don't know how, um, how useful that is, but that's the best way I can find it, what I wish I had left out. Maybe for the next book. Janet, how do you know what to keep and what to skim over? I put everything in in the first draft. It's a two-stage process. And then everything that makes my eyes glaze over gets cut. <laughs> but, but then I go through a critique group and the critique group has, um, early on, I had a guy who writes Russian spy novels, um, you know, and as Glenn says, when you have a thriller, people don't really want to read all that much. And the stuff that he would slag as sounding a little bit like a brochure is the stuff that I would go back to and really justify keeping it in. I mean, obviously, if, um, if it really was just too much, then I would take it out. But if, if you can really figure out how to make it a, an important part of the story because of the tone, because of the symbolism or whatever, then absolutely it stays in. And it, it's just about tightening. Tightening golden nuggets. And what did you say? If it makes your eyes glaze over? <laughs> going out that's easy <laughs> that's easy and tell us what do you keep and how what do you know to skim right over if i have a question about what i've written it's it's kind of like the reverse of what janet was saying if i have a question I, I knew i wrote it and i still can't figure it out i know i need to clarify i usually depend on an editor in much the same way because i don't necessarily know you know it, it's always a process so I, I'm always kind of, mm, do I need to do this? Do I not? Oh, but this is so interesting. Martin, tell us, what is the toughest part about researching? I write about the, the golden years of Hollywood, and there is a, a, an ocean of information for me to draw on. The unfortunate thing is, if a, a movie director or a movie star or a mogul has written their autobiography, um, they're going to write about their own life in the rosiest possible way. So they're going to perpetuate the myths that the studio publicity department has put out, which are usually exaggerations, often gross exaggerations of the truth. So my job is to read between those lines and to verify from other sources. So if I'm writing about a, a real life event, which I try to do as much as I can, I'm going to go to those biographies and memoirs of the people involved and I read what they wrote about the making of that movie or the shooting of that scene or that, that Academy Award presentation. So then I get the same event from various points of view. And what I include in my narrative are the, the details that they all agree on. So that's my starting point. And from there, I will build a, a factually fictional version of, of, my, of my scene. But you, have, you can't take anybody's word for it. Just because Lauren Bacall wrote about it in her biography doesn't mean to say that she wrote about it accurately or that she remembered it accurately. Mm -hmm. We all remember things the way we do. So you have, to, you have to read between the lines a bit and preferably from more than one source. So that's, that's my hardest thing is to, to separate the, the, the legend from the truth. Sounds like a lot of vetting. How about you, Glenn? What is the toughest part of researching? I think it's uh, judging the reliability of primary sources. And uh, it, it depends on the era I'm writing in. 
if I'm writing in the medieval period, I, I assume that the primary sources I'm working from are biased. Most of the, the accounts that are brought to us were written by monks or scribes who were paid by the royal courts or king. So you know they're going to have an axe to grind and they're going to put the uh, events that they're talking about in the best light. But as I get, if I'm writing about an era closer to our time period, then I try to triangulate whatever primary sources uh, I can find and see what matches and what doesn't. And I'll just give you one example. I wrote a story, a novel about the bonus march during the Great Depression. And one of my main characters was a uh, kind of a troubled but charismatic hobo who led in about 40,000 World War I veterans on a march into Washington to man um, jobs uh, in the 1930s. And he wrote a short memoir about that experience and he talked about his wife in it. And I just decided to run, run a marriage certificate search just to see if what he said was true. And it finds out he got his own wife's name wrong, first and last name in the memoir. And I learned from that as I, as I researched more that a lot of people during the Great Depression changed identities. They, they changed their own names, largely because they were trying to change their luck. And it got to the point where a lot of them had fractured identities. Uh, they couldn't even remember what some of their previous names were. Yeah. We can see why that happens, but that's, ah, that was a long time ago. I don't remember that person. <laughs> I was only married to her. <laughs> Janet, what is the toughest part about researching? I have it um, a little bit similar to Glenn, um, inconsistent reports and unreliable biographers. Um, there, um, even the contemporaneous sources aren't really necessarily accurate. You really kind of have to know which ones are. There's, there's one guy who was writing at the time and got Henry's six wives. He, he got the order wrong. Anything he says, you can kind of toss out. But at the same time, there's really good stuff in a lot of this. So like the ambassador's letters tend to be the most accurate, except they're the ones that are relying primarily on the scuttlebutt. So you really do have to wonder. I mean, whatever, this is the legend that has come down to us. And so I reserve the right to just put it all in if it's really good. <laughs> I'll take it, other than, other than the guy who got the wives wrong. And tell us, what is the toughest part about researching? Oh, worrying that I'm getting it wrong, that no matter how hard, and you know, the, the, the one thing that I always drives me nuts is the facts I know, and it turns out, no, you didn't. The problem I have with Chinese field hands, keep in mind, this is the third book in the series. I'm getting it ready to get out there. And I discover the site that has all these uh, period medical journals from the actual period. These are the journals that the doctors were reading and my character's a doctor. And one of them was the California Medical Gazette. Well, she's in California, she should have her hands on this, you know? And the first article is about bad air as a cause of disease. My problem was, is I was trying to figure out when sterile surgery arrived in Los Angeles, which is not that clear. We've looked, reading through this medical gazette, 1868 1869 which is a year before the series begins in 1870 and there's joseph lister's article on sterile surgery she would have at least heard about it so i had to do a little rewriting in the third book to explain why the first two books got it wrong <laughs> martin have you ever gotten a fact wrong yes that i'm sure i have gotten a lot of facts wrong because as i was saying before 
it, it's a, quite a job to sift through all the material that was put out by the studios about their stars and about their pictures and about their, their, their leading lights. And a lot of it was made up to various degrees. Sometimes whole biographies were revised. Sometimes their names were changed and everything was obscured. As much as you, you try and get the, the, the right story, but I have an embarrassment of riches to draw on when I'm writing these novels. And so I could spend my life researching them. At some point, you have to stop researching and you have to start writing. So I do. Uh, inevitably, with every book that comes out, I'll get a, an email or a, a comment on a Facebook, my Facebook page to say, actually, no, that's not quite how it happened. Here's how it happened. And then you just kind of have to go with it. You say, well, I, I did my best to write as historically accurate a story as I could, given the, the, the constraints that I'm working under, i.e. a lot of exaggeration and kind of move on. So that, that'll happen with every book. Your aim is to have as few of those as possible by the time the book comes out. Until the book comes out, you can change anything you like. But once, once it's set, once you've released it out into the wild, it's like, well, good, good luck. Glenn, have you ever gotten a historical fact wrong? I'm sure I have. Uh, nothing comes to mind. But you know, I think sometimes we're all a little too hard on ourselves. I was listening to uh, Stephen Pressfield on, uh, on a podcast uh, a few days ago. He's got a new book out uh, set in ancient Rome. He's very well known for his ancient Greece, uh, you know, uh, Gates of Fire and some of those. And um, the interviewer asked him, he said, how do you do such wonderful research and get such details in your books about ancient Greece and ancient Rome? And he, Pressfield is very honest. He says, 90% of what I put in my book is made up. And, and of course, the interviewer was stunned by that. And Pressfield said, look, a lot of what happens happened in ancient Greece, we don't know. The sources are very uh, sparse and we don't know if we can trust them. He even said he has a main character that he has taken from ancient Greece to ancient Rome. Of course, that's physically impossible to do, but he doesn't find anything wrong with that. So I'm sure we all make mistakes in terms of facts and, and so, sort of thing, but if Stephen Pressfield can be a little, little looser with it, I think we can too. Janet. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a fact wrong? Biggest fact I got wrong, I, I swear it was not really my fault because um, a lot of it came to light after I had published my book. Um, and it has to do with when um, my main character's father died. Um, and so it's something, believe it or not, that I can't really change because he was, and I thought that I had every right to rely on his tomb, his carved, stone tomb with the date 1536 carved. It's not like they made a mistake and said, you know, <laughs> they, they had the date carved in there, but as it turns out, the tomb was wrong. It was built by the man's grandson um, years after anyone who was alive at the time had died and nobody got the typo. <laughs> so, so you cannot trust something that has been carved in stone. And, you know, I, I, I'll give myself a pass on that. As, as Glenn says, we, we should be able to give ourselves passes on that. <laughs> How do you even fix that if it's carved in stone? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And tell us, did you ever get a fact wrong? Uh, well, besides the sterile surgery, <laughs> and, and, and truth be told, I didn't really know when they'd actually started practicing it because again, in that same medical gazette, there was the article on 
uh, you know, bad air as opposed to germ theory. So, but yeah, I, I'm sure I've made a few mistakes. Uh, I, I do my best now to make sure that the really bad ones don't get in, but you can't, you know, to, to be honest, there's really no way you can be that accurate, especially things like daily food. I mean, no, we don't, they didn't have Facebook. They weren't posting what they ate for lunch, you know, in the 19th century, it wasn't happening. I kind of, uh, you know, make a few educated guesses here and there and hope for the best. Martin, what is the fact that you hunted down that, that you are most proud of and did you end up using it in the novel? Yes, to answer the second question first, yes, I did. I had a scene in my Irving Thalberg novel that uh, took place at the Mayfair Ball, which was a very big event in, in Hollywood social life. This particular year, my two main characters, which Irving Thalberg and his actress wife, Norma Shearer, went to this ball. Now at this ball, this particular year, they were, the women were asked to wear white. So everybody went in white, except for Norma Shearer, who was a very classy kind of actress, very, very nice girl, but she went dressed in scarlet. So she walks in and the whole room goes, <gasps> well, as a writer, I thought, now there's a scene I can paint. That's, a, that's, that's something I can use. So I did a bit of research and found that that same night was the night that Clark Gable looked at Carol Lombard and went, oh, I like this. Oh, I like the look of this. I'm gonna pursue this further. Now it's been 780 years since that ball took place. Hardly anybody now remembers the, the big scandal at the time, which was Norma Shearer wearing a scarlet dress when she was asked to wear white. What everybody remembers is the, that's the first time that Clark Gable and uh, Carol Lombard kind of discovered each other. And the result of that is that one of the biggest Hollywood romances started that night. So it was one of those wonderful moments where you start looking for one thing and you find something just, if not more, exciting because that's the thing that everybody remembers that came out of that night. So I was uh, very happy when I came across that little gem. I wonder if she just didn't get the memo. No, she got the memo. She decided to make a scene. Glenn, what is the fact that you hunted down that you are most proud of and did it go into your novel? In my Great Depression story about the bonus march, one of my characters was the police chief uh, in Washington, D.C. And uh, his, um, he was very famous at the time, but he then kind of moved into obscurity. His uh, archives were kept at the University Research Library here at UCLA. And as I went through them, I could see that they had been sanitized. There was nothing personal uh, in them, just basically official business. Not what I really needed for the novel. But I found out that he, about the, the time I was writing, his marriage failed and that his ex-wife, her papers had been stored at the Daughters of Texas Library, which is right next to the Alamo, San Antonio. So I said to myself, am I gonna pay for a flight to San Antonio? It could just be a wild goose chase, but I finally decided to do it, and I walked in, and when I opened her files, I was stunned. Uh, photos that had never seen the light of day, and there was a package that hadn't been opened. I, I opened it up. She had an unpublished manuscript, a book she was wanting to publish about her life, which is my character. Everything I needed personally was in there, and what the great thrill was Historians had never found this, those who had written about this. So that's that's the great fun for me. And I've had it happen more than once. Find something that the historians haven't found. 
that's very cool. And you have to believe what the ex-wife says. Exactly. <laughs> and ex-husband. Janet, what is the fact that you hunted down that you that you are most proud? And did you use it in your novel? Nowhere near as epic as Glenn's. <laughs> so I had in um, Path to Somerset, I had a scene where a uh, 54-year-old Henry has just found out that his 18-year-old fifth wife has been unfaithful. And he is devastated and runs off to in, into his own castle with no one around him and just drown his sorrows. And I decided that I wanted to put him in his bathrobe eating ice cream out of a tub, the Tudor equivalent, mind you. And so <laughs> the, the bathrobe was easy. You know, I figured out exactly the fur that would go around the collar so that that was good. But the ice cream equivalent was a little bit tougher. Turns out what it would have been was whale blubber. And Ooh. I, <laughs> exactly, I, I could not put that in. I could not get over the ick factor. I would have had to do like this whole song and dance about, oh, the delicacy. And it, it wouldn't have been realistic at all. So I had to give up the whale blubber and just let him overeat <laughs> generically. I think that's a lot of facts that we, un we uncover or we unearth and we're just like, mm, there's an ooh factor. And tell us a fact that you hunted down that you are most proud of, and did you use it in your novel? Well, yeah, actually, uh, both of uh, uh, in addition to uh, finding out about sterile surgery, which I was very proud when I dig dug that up. But the other big fact was finding out what the sluice gates into the ditches. L Los Angeles in 1870, actually from the Mexican era all the way up until 1911, was irrigated by a series of ditches or zanjas. And they came off the LA River through the Zanja Madre. You had these sluice gates that you'd pay your subscription and they'd open the sluice gate, the water would rush in. But I couldn't find any information on whether they were metal or wood. It went through all the city council uh, minutes, or well, not all of them, but I went through a good many of them. $50 to the Zanjero or water overseer for materials, but it doesn't say which materials. I hooked up with one of the librarians at the uh, history department at uh, Los Angeles Public Library and those gals, those people down there, Glenn Creason, the whole crew, they are terrific. I, I cannot recommend and <laughs> thank these people enough, but they found it in the tourist literature. There were some obscure references to wood so I, oh, okay, it's made of wood. Have, do you have any tips for interviewing people and asking experts? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you two. Uh, one, uh, try to invest them in your story. One thing I like to do is, to, I'd like to ask how you spell your name exactly for the acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. They sometimes perk up a little bit when you do that and think, oh, well, you know, I'm gonna be part of this. And the second thing is, I, I, you gotta be a little careful with academics because once in a while I find they can be a little territorial. If they find out you're writing about a subject maybe they've done a nonfiction book on, um, they may not be quite as forthcoming. Janet, do you have any tips for interviewing people and asking experts? Glenn has a the really good basic answer. I love that and I'm absolutely stealing it. What I have actually found myself doing though is crowdsourcing the answer. 
um, Facebook groups are amazing <laughs> sources of knowledge. Um, and I'd like to give a shout out to, um, I forget which of the hunting and falconry groups actually helped me with this one, but they basically let me know exactly which bird the six-year-old Prince Edward Tudor would have gotten as his first bird and what he would have, you know, what that meant and, you know, could he get a slightly bigger one and gave me a whole bunch of parameters for making all of those changes. So that's another source to never forget about. How about you, Anne? Do you have any tips for- Don't be afraid to ask. Always ask. I mean, and I ask some, you know, again, I write murder mysteries. So I'm asking some pretty weird stuff. I've emailed the president of a Model T club asking for ways that could, you know, that a Model T could be, a truck could be sabotaged. And he gave me some great answers. I mean, he was really wondering why I wanted to sabotage. No, no, it's not real. It's not real. I kept emphasizing that, but he, he uh, you know, ask. You know, the, the worst they can do is say, eh, don't be afraid to ask, even if it's a tough question or a really weird one. Martin, what is one of your secret research skills? I don't know if this is a secret skill, but it's um, the one that I've come to turn to the most is the day I discovered that all the newspapers are available online. Uh, back issues dating back as far as they go. Newspapers.com is my new friend. Because I'm trying to sift the through the legends down to the truth, part of that process is finding out how these people were written about in the press. And that could be like the general press, like the LA Times or the Examiner, or it could be in the trade press, like the Hollywood Reporter, or it could be in the fan magazines like Motion Picture. So I can go back and I can see how they were presented to the public or how they were interviewed and hopefully, if it's a, if it's like a Hollywood reporter, I can see how they how they responded, how they actually talked when they were being interviewed. Of course, it's it's an interview; it's for public consumption, so it's for show. But it still it gives me another aspect of how these people were presented at the time of their career, not with the 20, 30, 40, 50 years distance, but at the time it comes out. So that's been a terrific tool that I use quite a lot newspapers.com. Glenn, tell us a secret research skill. Well, I wouldn't call it a skill, but I, I enjoy uh, walking cemeteries at the locations I write about. I, I find a lot of information from the tombstones, uh, not only what's written on them, but who's buried next to whom, uh, who isn't. Uh, just give you <laughs> one example on my, on my recent uh, book. Uh, my character who helped save a small town I, I walked out there, the first thing I did when I arrived was to go out to the local cemetery and I couldn't find her gravestone. I found that odd. Uh, and I later learned she was buried in a town a hundred miles away. Nobody could really explain that to me. So that opened up another aspect of the story. And, and, and I discovered why she wasn't. And um, don't hesitate to go out to the cemetery. Sometimes there's a lot of facts and uh, mysteries lurking out there. That's cool. I'll trust the dates. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Janet, what is one of your secret research skills? Books of accounts. Basically to find out what people spent money on, um, because that is um, that tells you what they owned, what they cared about. 
and, and letters that talk about this. There is this wonderful historian who actually went through um, and analyzed. There was a, a very high ranking couple that was living in Calais at the time. And there were letters, 500 letters that went back and forth in a three year period. And she analyzed the letters for the gifts that they referenced because this woman, and I used um, a few of the things, wanted to get her daughters placed at court. So she was sending presents to everybody to try to get this done. So you can find out what people valued, what they sent and uh, it's, uh, quail basically is what finally got two of her daughters <laughs> placed with the queen. Um, a pregnant Jane Seymour was dying for that. So um, basically just going back to the stuff that, that is left over, the stuff that people never really thought about using for, you know, it's not like people were writing their biographies or stuff like that. This was just the stuff that they wrote down because they needed to write it down. How about you, Anne? What is your secret research skill? Besides calling my husband? Hi. <laughs> I'm married to an archivist who actually the archivist for the city of Los Angeles. So I have all those city records available to me. They are also online, by the way, a lot of them. I do ask him quite frequently. I mean, but no, I, my, some of my favorite things are Sanborn maps. Those are the most wonderful things uh, on, the, on the planet. They, they're from the late 19th century through uh, the mid 60s their fire insurance so again they were trying to figure out what the buildings were made of so they're all color-coded and all sorts of wonderful things like that tourist literature i find all sorts of things in the tourist literature because the tourists are running around saying oh look at what they're doing and everybody else is saying okay we're just doing it we're not writing this down <laughs> and uh, advertising love ads newspaper ads are great and then finally, planning documents, city planning documents. If you're writing in the 20th century, there's all sorts of wonderful stuff. I was gathering some documents for a real estate uh, broker one time, and I came across this one for an address in El Segundo that was a former defense plant. And they were trying to get a conditional use permit, which is a way of saying, hey, this isn't zoned for this, but we'll let you do it anyway, for a childcare center at the plant. And I looked at the date and it said 1942. 1942, we've got Rosie the Riveter in there. That was interesting stuff. And I, I mean, I found some stuff on a mall. And if you really want to know what was in a city, where it was at, that's a good thing. And, you know, my husband also has in his archive all these public works photos that they took of all the streets from the 1920s all the way up through, I think, the 40s or 50s. And so if you wanted to know what a certain street in LA looked like in 1928, before they did X, Y, or Z, you go look at those photos and you'll see. It's, it's really, there's all sorts of amazing stuff out there. It's a lot of fun. I actually like to use paintings from the era, painting mm -hmm. and artwork from the era, because I think it gives you a good feel for clothing mm -hmm. and food and whatever else was going on at the time. You just have to make sure that the artist did it in the time frame. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it tends to have their own personal stamp on it. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I like the ads is you get a lot of the clothing ads. You can see exactly what they were wearing. Uh, catalogs are great for that, too. Martin, tell us, how do you organize your research? I have three main files. Uh, the first two I spoke of e earlier, I have a master file of my dateline my timeline that details what happened, when, to who, what was the result, how do things change. And that's a very, very long document that I've been keeping since I started researching. 
The second one is another master document, which is all the cafes and restaurants, the nightclubs, speakeasies, studios, all sorts of uh, places where I can set scenes. The third one is very book specific. I'll transcribe, if I've got a book, the one I'm currently working on is 1952. So I'll, I'll transcribe the, the major events that happened in 1942, because of course that's now the war, and the way things changed when uh, rationing came in, because different things came, in, came to be rationed at different times. So I need to know when, when that happened. The, the movies that were big at the time, the, the, the songs that were big at the time, the, the orchestras, the big band orchestras that became popular. So anything that's specific to the time of, that I'm particularly writing about at the moment, goes into the third document and out of that comes plot ideas and setting ideas. So I go from big wide wide file to a very very specific to what I'm working on otherwise I could just get too distracted with all the details. Glenn, how do you organize your research? Well I've changed with my last book. In ancient times I would use binders, a binder for every character and spend a small fortune in Xerox costs this time around, I've used Scrivener, and I'm in love with Scrivener. Everything I can put in my research, I can copy-paste in the research files on Scrivener. I can take it with me wherever I go with the laptop. It's really revolutionized how, how I uh, organize my research. Janet, how do you organize your research? I have been smart enough that in recent years, I have started to annotate my timeline with where I found what information. <laughs> <laughs> so I can go back to it very easily. Um, I also have a lot of stuff. So things um, that makes it almost easy to get rid of facts that I can't squeeze into the book and, and be okay with that, um, even if it's really wonderful, is that I have a blog. And that's where all the nonfiction goes. And a lot of the stuff that I want, I can actually go back and I've, I've done it already and I have my little footnotes there. So um, that really helps. And, and Pinterest is my last one. Um, all of the photographs of the different castles and the portraits, like as, as you were saying, Autumn, what were they wearing? And, and what did the castles look like? And you know, that, that, that's my version and of the, uh, <laughs> the plots. And how do you organize your research? Oh, I love Evernote. Uh, you can put an Evernote link into Scrivener. I do like Scrivener's. I want to have access to the research outside of the actual work I'm working on. So that's for me. This is an outline, torn up scraps of paper. You know, I do try to go by the rule of threes. If there are three articles saying roughly the same thing, I'm figuring that's probably accurate. I have a little button on my browser and it just clicks and goes right in. So I can take photos of all this wonderful stuff and put it into Evernote. And I usually have a different Evernote notebook for each no novel. And I've recently set up one for a couple of the series or all the series. I'm not the most organized person on the planet, but again, you know, I, I like calendars too. I, I like writing things out on calendars. That's my version of a timeline and that, oh, and we're referring to something that happened last week. And it really, you know, I've, I've had to double check that because sometimes it didn't happen last week. It happened two weeks before in the narrative. Evernote is probably, as far as an organization, I also like AN Timeline. AON timeline is really great for laying out your outlines, especially in terms of, especially if you're very date-based like I am. I have one more question to ask you all. What unusual thing have you done in the name of research? 
can I answer in terms of what unusual thing has happened to me? Absolutely. <laughs> I was in Scotland for maybe the second or third time researching my Scotland novel during the time of Robert the Bruce. And there's a, there's a famous legend about he's being chased by the English and he holds up in a cave somewhere and he's in his desperate straits. He thinks Scotland is about to be taken over by England. He's about to give up and he sees a spider coming down on a thread and that spider is struggling to get back up the thread and he sees that as a sign that he's got to continue the struggle for Scotland. Legend has it this this cave could be anywhere on four or five different places in Scotland but I was on the Aran Islands which was one of the areas and I said I don't have time to go to all these caves I need a sign of where the real cave is so I can describe it. And so I walked up to a cave called the King's Cave and it had a metal gate in front of it and on that gate was a huge spider sitting in the middle of the web with the royal colors of Scotland on its back. And I go, oh my God, I asked for a sign. This has got to be the cave. So I took a picture, a photograph of it because I knew nobody would believe me. When I got back home to show everybody the photograph, that spider was missing from the photograph. So stuff like that happened to me all the time in Ireland and Scotland. There's something about the Celtic countries that are a little <laughs> mystical. That's, yeah. <laughs> wow. Martin, tell us what unusual thing have you done in the name of research? One of my characters in, in my series of, I was, I was about to start writing this book. This is the Garden on Sunset, which is the first book in my Hollywood's Garden of Alice series. And I knew in a couple of books that my, my, my uh, main character was going to become a screenwriter at MGM. So I, I needed to go over to MGM to the studios to do a tour so I could I could just check out the lay of the land and somebody said to me you're wasting your time it's now Sony Studios they only talk about the new movies that they're doing right now they don't talk about the old stuff and I thought well well we'll see so I went down and I joined the tour and sure enough the tour guide who's a very nice person and doing a very good job was only talking about the movies that they were making at the time which was one of the um the Finchie Code movies. They were, it was most of the sound stages. So I'm like, okay, this is not why I'm here. So I thought I'm going to take charge of this situation. So I said, excuse me, um, I've got a, a question about the MGM days. And the guy looked at me and went, oh, like you do? Oh, okay. So I asked a question and he knew the answer. It was a very full answer that he gave. And I kind of knew the answer already, but I was curious to see if he knew. So I did. And he did. And that led to another question. And that led to another question. So I pretty much took over the tour. I don't know what my fellow tour people were hoping for, but I was here for, for research. So I just basically turned this from a, stu a Sony studio tour into an MGM studio tour, which was actually kind of fantastic because in the end, we went to the soundstage, which was used during the production of uh, The Wizard of Oz. It was mm -hmm. the Munchkin Village. So we were standing for what I think of as hallowed turf. Not only that, but the guy said, come here. And he took us to a trap door which was used for the Wicked Witch of the West. When she disappears in a puff of smoke, the actress actually went down a, a trap door. Well, they, the trap door was still there. So that for me was like the Holy of Holies. So my, <laughs> my tip is just take charge, just, just hijack the tour and get out of the tour what you need to get out of it. And I, I'm, I'm very glad I did. I think we would all like to go on a Hollywood tour with you. Janet, what unusual thing have you done in the name of research? I got to join an archaeological dig 
Um, there were people who believed that they had found like little lumps that were um, an Elizabethan garden that had been built specifically to welcome Elizabeth I um, a few years, um, like it was like the fifth anniversary of the Armada. And um, they crowdfunded the digging up of this. And I ran off and I spent two full days. Uh, the first day they gave me a shovel, a pickaxe, and I broke my back. And the second day was much more my speed. They put me in um, the tent. It was a really hot day and I got, I was out of the sun and they gave me a toothbrush and a little water thing. And I got to clean all of, it's a very painstaking job and a very important one too. I got to clean all of the little artifacts, um, the pieces of pottery and the glass that had been found the day before. So that that is so cool. And what unusual thing have you done in the name of research? Drank wine. <laughs> um, if I may go back for one second, apropos of what Janet was saying about making sure you've got your notes documented, there are a few things we found when I was doing my Zanjero research in the city council minutes that we cannot find again. I know they're still there. So get your scans. It's the other thing Evernote can do is you can just get your little scan of the document on your phone and it'll go right into Evernote. So I just wanted to go into that. But yeah, as far as drinking wine, yeah. <laughs> no, it's kind of a joke because right around the time I was doing the research for Zanjero, my husband was starting to do research into the history of wine growing in Los Angeles, which actually goes back to, uh, well, the days of the Padres because of course they needed to have the wine for the communion services. And then in the 1820s, Jean-Louis Vigne, as in Vignes Street, if you've ever heard of that street downtown, brought the first European varietals to Los Angeles. And uh, for a long time, we were shipping grapes up to Napa. We had them first guys. So one of the reasons Maddie is a winemaker was because that's a lot of what they were growing in LA at the time. And it just made sense to do something that was involved. And so my husband found these two old vines at the oldest building extant in Los, Ange Los Angeles, the Avila Adobe, which is on Avila Street. You go into the courtyard, there are these two vines growing up and they're on an, uh, uh, an awning. And uh, he realized there were grapes on them and asked the guys in the foundation in, who are in charge of the, uh, of the adobe, hey, can I take these and make uh, wine out of them? Because my husband's an amateur winemaker. He did, he made Angelica, which is the uh, uh, big wine they were drinking back then because it, it, it's named for uh, Los Angeles and it's a kind of sherry, it's a fortified wine that they make. And so he started making it and now I know what it actually tastes like. And, and because he's been dealing with these grapes, I also know what it's like to work with the darn things. <laughs> and in fact, in the beginning of Chinese field hands, Maddie's griping about how these darn grapes don't ripen evenly. And I'm like, how do I know this? <laughs> Basically, I guess that's the strangest thing I've ever done. Uh, for research. Well, that is it for this session of History Talks. Thank you so much for watching. Below in the description box, every author will have all of their details, their Amazon link, their Facebook links, and any other links they want you to have. Please check out their websites, Facebook pages, and all their other social media. And buy our books. Buy our books. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Bye-bye. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.